Well, I hope that you have enjoyed this journey through Revelation as much as I have. And now, for these next two Sundays, we'll be skipping to the end of the book. And I want to note, just as you've probably already made a mental note, that there is a lot that we've left unturned within this book. And we will be launching a Wednesday morning Bible study that deals with some of the other portions of the book of Revelation. And perhaps in the future, we'll be able to take a more comprehensive look at the book from this Sunday morning perspective. But for now, uh, we are almost at the end of our time with Revelation. So today and then finally next week, we'll look at the last chapter of Revelation, which is the last chapter of Scripture altogether. And it's interesting how well we listen and know the first chapter of Scripture, Genesis 1, but how the last chapter is somehow less familiar to us. And yet its beauty is absolutely astounding. But if we were to go back to that first century, part of what we've inherited in the book of Revelation has come through the thousands of years of our church history. And so we read it through the lenses of all of the visions that we've perhaps seen in cathedrals of sort of the great judgment and the new city and the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of the clouds. And so that populates our imagination as we read this text. But if we were to go back before those visions had been cast across the cathedrals in Western Europe, if we were to go back like we've been trying to do in this book throughout the whole summer to the cities that first heard this vision, we would not want to keep in mind the context in which they see themselves which is that they are on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. They are not in the center of what's happening. They are definitely of interest, and there is a move from the empire into their places of location, but they are not holding the places of power. And even as the empire of Rome would grow, And as its church power would expand over the next thousand years, this little region of Asia Minor wouldn't actually benefit that much from much of it. So if we could remove how we've learned to think about this passage, and instead we could think about what it was like for those first communities, what might that be like instead? Well, I would imagine that one of the questions that these first communities were asking is how do you imagine the goodness of God in a world where that seems like the furthest thing from anyone's imagination? How do you recapture this idea of what it means to be good? What does it look like when goodness sits in the place of power? Don't forget that all of a sudden these communities were interfacing with power in ways that they hadn't before, and it wasn't always positive. It had economic benefits, but the reality of the Roman soldiers occupying their space, coming into their cities and marching up and down, erecting these temples for Caesar in all of these different locations, 
They could sense that something was changing and it wasn't necessarily for the good of history. So what does it look like to have good in the place of power? That's something that these first communities needed to hear and it's something that we need to hear as well. So if you imagine this 21st chapter of Revelation and you put that up into contrast with the reality of the rule of Caesar, how might those things differ from each other? The vision of the culture of the day where things stood or fell with just how close you were able to get yourself to Rome. The vision of the culture of the day where the congregation of Roman soldiers lived as an ever-living reminder of who really had the power. Revelation 21 stands in opposition to that image that folks were living with on a daily basis of who it was that had the power. And it's a vision that sort of populates our imagination with what it is finally like when we have an idea when peace and love and justice is able to sit in the place of power. It's a beautiful vision that John paints in this world where the goal for life itself is for God and humanity to live in harmony together. For God and humanity to live in harmony together. It seems easy enough. And yet, any conversation with any person, whether they be atheist or of a different faith or Christian, would reveal that one's ideas about God somehow come into play when one is talking about the meaning of human life. And so John takes this vision of God, and he talks about how the end goal is for God and humanity to live in harmony together. And when the one that he understands to be God, or another way of putting that, is when the God that he understands to come to the throne sits in that place, what we start to see is that there is an end. There is an end of death. There is an end of mourning. There is an end of grief. There is an end of violation and hurt and destruction. That last Verse that we read that talks about all of sort of those horrible things living within the lake of fire. You know, those are one of those verses within scripture that can feel so off-putting for folks who are not familiar with the biblical imagination. But the reality is that the biblical imagination calls things into being and notices that there are things within the world that are not good. And the biblical imagination and the biblical writers call them out. And they say, these things are not good and they will come to their end.
One of the things, I had a chance to listen to all the sermons that were preached in my absence. And when Allie preached on August 12th, one of the things that she noted uh, in her um, sort of reflection on the vision of worship in Revelation is that as the writer moves beyond speaking to the seven churches and then moves to this place where the writer is just kind of in the midst of this vision, sort of seeing God's vision for the world in the present tense, that it's not necessarily that John is seeing into the future, but what John is seeing is that the reign of God is existing now and that there's really no separation between heaven and earth in the way that we commonly understand that to be. And that's very hard for us to understand because we don't see the inbreaking of heaven in the same way that these writers do. But when they're taken into this place of sort of seeing the spiritual realities, what they recognize is that God is not in fact far away or up there, but right here in our midst and that these heavenly realities are starting to inbreak into the world and we have the opportunity to claim them as we move forward in our faith and in our understanding. And so the reason why I bring that to bear in our text today is that when we read this last chapter of Revelation, it would not do us a good service to think of it exclusively as something that will exist in the future. It is a current vision. When John sees this, he sees it in the present tense. He doesn't see the future, he sees the now. And as he is taken into heaven, he sees time absorbed into eternity, not necessarily just the great beyond, but the great now and not yet. All wrapped up into one. And I think that this is especially important for this book of Revelation, especially this 21st chapter, because sometimes when we start to think about our future hope as something that only exists way out into time, then we lose our connection with how it actually impacts our present reality. And the reality is that this vision is not just about a future hope, but it is about a present purpose. A present hope, a present reality that we can live into now. You see, hope is a wonderful thing, but hope needs a connection to the present or else it quickly fades into disillusionment. Real hope needs to stay anchored in the grit and the struggle of the everyday. And it sees the future as something to strive for, not something to wait absently for. And when the vision of hope empowers us towards action, then that is when it begins to take root in the present. See, hope straddles time, just like this vision straddles time. Hope lives in the present, but it points towards the future. It's not bound like we are to living in one time and in one space. It exists in multiple time and spaces because hope comes from God who is not bound by time. And that means that hope can exist in the now and the not yet 
all at the same time. And the way that we claim that hope of the future is by laying hold of it in the present. So without the real grit, the struggle, the work, the grief, the sadness, the frustration, friends, without those things, it is not hope. It is just blind faith. And we are not people of blind faith. We are people of hope. In May of 1984, after being taken off of Robben Island, off the coast of Cape Town, South Africa, and moved then to a different prison outside of Cape Town in one of the suburbs called Paulsmore Prison, Nelson Mandela had a scheduled visit with his wife, Winnie. He had had many visits with his wife over the years, but he was never allowed to come across the glass that existed between them. And on this particular visit, as things were beginning to change in South Africa, they had started something that Mandela was not quite aware of yet. And so in this particular visit, he was ushered to a separate room where there were no dividers. He went to see his wife and daughter, and for the first time, he found himself himself in the very same room as them. And he says this. I was escorted by Warrant Officer Gregory, who instead of taking me to the normal visiting area, ushered me into a separate room where there was only a small table and no dividers of any kind. He very softly said to me that the authorities had made a change. That day was the beginning of what were known as contact visits. He then went outside to see my wife and daughter and asked to speak with Winnie privately. Winnie actually got a fright when Gregory took her aside, thinking that perhaps I had taken ill, but Gregory escorted her around the door, and before either of us knew it, we were in the same room and in each other's arms. I kissed and held my wife for the first time in all of these many years. It was a moment that I had dreamed about a thousand times. It was as if I were still dreaming. I held her to me for what seemed like an eternity. We were still and silent, except for the sound of our hearts. I did not want to let go of her at all, but I broke free and embraced my daughter, and then took her child onto my lap. It had been 21 years since I had even touched my wife's hand. It was a moment that he had dreamed about a thousand times. How hard that dream must have been to keep alive. Through the cold winters on the island and the long nights on the cement floor and the hard labor in the early years of arrest, and then the difficult dance of working for the liberation of black people while still remaining in negotiation with the white government, how difficult it must have been to keep that dream alive. 
the long, long walk to freedom indeed, and through it all, the continual visits from Winnie, but only through the glass alone, and then one day, unexpected, the separate room and face to face. I tell this story not to romanticize the story of Nelson Mandela, because like all stories of struggle, his is a story that should not have been. As a person of color, Nelson Mandela stands in a long line of people who, in their attempt to speak to power, have been stripped, shamed, and almost erased. And this should not have been. And we must pause and reckon with that. And still, as our human brother, we have the privilege through his story of seeing hope. The grit and the strength of keeping hope alive by visiting his wife time and time again and never being able to even touch her hand, cultivating the hope in the midst of what seemed like an impossibility that one day we will touch again. You see, it's the dream of the impossible that keeps us alive during the grit of the struggle. It's the connection between the dream and the current reality that matters in this moment of time. That is what we must nurture, and that is what we must not lose, and that is why the vision of the 21st chapter of Revelation is so important for our time and culture today, because we must not lose the vision of hope. More than that, the vision of hope must enter in to the grit and the struggle that we face in every moment that we see. Friends, we also have an American leader that we remember today who led us into hope. Senator John McCain, after living as a prisoner of war for six years while he was captured by the North Vietnamese, came back and opted to move into public service. And during the 1990s, it was John McCain that worked alongside the Clinton administration to restore the diplomatic relationship between the United States and Vietnam. The very place where he had received his torture was the place where he worked day by day to restore a relationship of hope. You see, that is how you live hope out. You connect the future to the present. You do not absently wait for it. There is a difference between hope and blind faith. Friends, we live in a time of constant contradictions. Our culture is hard to make sense of. Bill Gates has recently endorsed a book that is entitled Factfulness, 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. The writer is Hans Rosling, and it's on a long delay at the library, so if you're looking to read it, you've probably got two months to go. Alongside of that, 
The New York Times recently, in their Saturday weekend edition magazine, maybe you saw it from a few weeks back, released an article that had been put together over the course of a year that documents the two degree rise in the Earth's temperature and charts some of the possibility that can happen should that two degree rise reach a four degree rise. So which is it? Are things better than you think? Or are we facing a four degree rise in the Earth's atmosphere? Is it hope or destruction? Is it the beginning or the end? I think we move with trepidation and say at the moment we do not know. But what we do know is that we need to keep hope alive. Not blind faith, but hope. Hope is connected to the struggle. It stewards the dream in order to find the guts to face the challenge of our time, whatever that may be. Whether it be walking alongside an oppressed people group in South Africa, whether it be walking alongside an administration to bring diplomatic relations to a country in which we had lost touch with, or whether it, whether it be the culture of contradictions that we live in today, where we don't know where we're going, but we do know who holds the future. And so in that, we walk forward in hope. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for this text. May it fill us, may it become full in our imagination and grow, that we might see how to enter into the struggle and the grit that we face in our daily life in a unique way. Give us the grace to move forward and the courage in your name. Amen. Friends, let us rise.